we continue to believe that a diplomatic path is the right path forward. When the Trump administration pulled out, what they left us with is a, a far decreased visibility of Iran's nuclear capability, uh, of inspections at their sites, of an understanding of how close they were to acquiring a nuclear weapon. That's not in anyone's interest, certainly not the American people. Certainly not. Yeah, there's that mess to clean up, too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain's KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, along with other fine terrestrial stations. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Fine internet streaming affiliates all blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to another edition of The Bradcast. Well, the uh, cleanup on aisle 45 continues apace today, Desi Doyen. There's a lot to clean up. Ain't that the truth uh, on both the domestic and foreign fronts. Talks got underway in Vienna this week to figure out how to restore what had been the otherwise very successful anti-nuclear deal between Iran and and, uh, six other nations, including the U.S., at least until Donald Trump came around and for no logical reason at all, simply blew the whole thing up by unilaterally and unlawfully pulling the U.S. out of that deal. Moreover, he not only reimposed sanctions on Iran that had been lifted, but he imposed additional new ones, and he did so in a way, uh, as the Trump administration admitted at the time, a way that would make it very difficult for future presidents to lift those sanctions. Donald Trump was not good at much, but at screwing things up in a way that makes them nearly impossible to fix, well, he seems to have excelled at that, at least. Nonetheless, with talks underway this week in Vienna to try and see if Humpty Dumpty can be put together again after Humpty Trumpty screwed it all up, (laughs) uh, we will be joined by Middle East expert Dr. Trita Parsi, who advised the Obama White House on the initial deal back in 2015. 
to explain what exactly Trump has done and whether the Biden administration will be able to undo it and restore what had been a very promising new era with Iran. All of that, by the way, just two months out from new elections in Iran, where hardliners there, that would be the Islamic Republic's version of the Republican Party, if you will, uh, they would very much like to avoid any new deal with the U.S., who they argue pretty convincingly at this point simply cannot be trusted to hold up our end of any bargain. That's ahead. Uh, but first, as to just one of the many domestic messes that we are still dealing with and trying to clean up in the post-Trump era, we told you in the past several weeks that uh, in addition to two separate civil lawsuits filed against Donald Trump by Congress members Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, and Eric Swalwell, Democrat from California, holding him accountable or trying to for inciting the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, that many more members of Congress were likely to either file their own lawsuits or join the existing ones. Well, sure enough, on Wednesday, a group of 10 Democratic members of Congress whose lives were endangered at the Capitol that day joined a federal lawsuit against former President Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, claiming that they violated a 19th century statute. That would be the Ku Klux Klan Act, the law passed in the years following the Civil War to combat white supremacist terrorism, uh, when they tried to prevent the certification of the presidential election on June 6th. Uh, Representatives Karen Bass of California, Steve Cohn of Tennessee, Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, Veronica Escobar of Texas, Hank Johnson of Georgia, Marcy Kaptur of Ohio, Barbara Lee of California, Jerry Nadler of New York, Pramila Jayapal of Washington, and Maxine Waters of California on Wednesday all joined the lawsuit that originally also named the Proud Boys, the far-right nationalist group, and the Oath Keepers Militia Group. But since the official dissolution of the Proud Boys organization back in February, I had no idea that they dissolved. I didn't Did either. You? No. Well, because apparently they have officially dissolved uh, the suit now names as defendants the Van Dyke Organization LLC, War Boys LLC, and Jazoo Transport LLC which the suit describes as successors to the Proud Boys. Same proud racists, newly created legal entities, apparently. Look, let's change the name. They won't see us now. War Boys, LLC. Who will guess? Really, dudes? The legal action, according to the uh, New York Times, accuses Trump, Giuliani, and the other groups of conspiring to incite a violent riot at the Capitol with the goal of preventing Congress from certifying the election. It contends that uh, Trump and Giuliani violated the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act's protections against violent conspiracies that interfere with Congress's congressional duties. Huh, that sounds spot on. The NAACP originally brought the suit on behalf of uh, Congressman Thompson in February, adding to a host of legal problems that Trump is facing since le leaving office. The defendants acted in concert 
to incite and then carry out a riot at the Capitol by promoting an assembly of persons to engage in tumultuous and violent conduct or the threat of it that created grave danger or harm to the plaintiffs and to other members of Congress, the suit reads. In the amended complaint, lawmakers describe the trauma that they experienced in the aftermath of the insurrection. All 10 of the lawmakers joining the suit were in the House gallery when pro-Trump rioters breached the Capitol on January 6th. Many of them were in the building that day, uh, who were in the building that day, continue to suffer from the trauma of hearing gunshots and seeing broken windows and the faces of rioters on the other side of the door. The uh, NAACP says uh, members report continuing nightmares, difficulty sleeping. Congresswoman Bass says in the amended complaint that she learned that the Capitol had been breached upon walking into her office that day, noting that if she had walked slower or been delayed by just a few minutes, she would have been at higher risk of being attacked by the mob. Uh, for days after the riot, the congresswoman was troubled by the realization that she could have been seriously harmed, harmed or killed at the Capitol that day, according to the complaint. Congressman Cohen notes, uh, quote, as I sat in my office on January 6th with rioters roaming the hallways, I feared for my life and thought I was going to die. Adding that he was even contemplating at the time whether he would want to be buried with his family in Memphis or at the Congressional Cemetery. Congressman Nadler charged uh, in a statement today that the, uh, quote, this violence was anything but spontaneous. It was the direct result of a conspiracy to incite a riot instigated by President Trump, Rudolph Giuliani, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers. As to Trump's part in it, the U.S. Senate agrees with the folks filing this lawsuit after he was found, Donald Trump was found guilty of inciting the insurrection by a majority of U.S. senators during his second impeachment trial in February. Yes, that was just the month before last. Good Lord. Uh, by a, uh, a 57 to 43 majority vote that included seven Republican senators finding Trump guilty. And yes, even former Republican U.S. House Speaker John Boehner, whose new audiobook we recently discussed on this show after he would reportedly get drunk during audio sessions and toss in random shots at Texas Senator Ted Cruz like this. Freedom means you can be a genius and invent new products that make you millions of dollars and helps millions of people. It means you're free to work your way to becoming the first in your family to go to college. It means you're free to reach as high as you want, no matter where you came from, even if you're a little kid sweeping a bar out in southwest Ohio. Take it from me. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. <laughs> so that, that John Boehner, yes. in case you didn't remember... In case we just needed some excuse to play that clip again, uh, even that John Boehner is blaming Donald Trump for personally inciting the deadly riot at the Capitol in his new book. According to The New York Times, the former House Speaker issues a stinging denunciation of Trump in the book, saying that the former president, quote, incited that bloody insurrection by his supporters on January 6th and that the Republican Party had been taken over by, quote, whack jobs. 
And yes, it is troubling that far-right John Boehner and I agree on these things and that he is able to call them whack jobs. Uh, and he's right. And he's right, even though he himself is a whack job. The <laughs> criticism from Boehner in the book um, is an extraordinary public rebuke by a former Speaker of the House, the Times charges uh, toward a former president from his own party and shows how much Republican winds have shifted since Boehner left Congress in 2015. Gosh, that was only 2015? Yep. In the book, an excerpt from which was obtained, uh, an excerpt of which was obtained by the New York Times, Boehner writes that Trump's, quote, refusal to accept the results of the election not only cost Republicans the Senate, but led to the mob violence, adding it was painful to watch. At another point, he writes, quote, I'll admit I wasn't prepared for what came after the election. Trump refusing to accept the results and stoking the flames of conspiracy that turned into violence in the seat of our democracy, the building over which I once presided. Well, frankly, anyone who was not prepared for what came after this election, uh, honestly, I don't has been living in a dream world for the past five years. Or maybe in the case of Boehner, I don't know, enjoying way too much Merlot <laughs> as your fellow countrymen devolved into a disinformed mass of angry idiots thanks to the lies echoed for the past several decades by right-wing media outlets aimed only at keeping your people, John Boehner, in power, no matter how many lies they had to tell over our public airwaves to do it. Am I right, Mr. Speaker? Cheers. Even the Times' Maggie Haberman notes that Boehner's remarks were a rejection of what the party he once helped lead had morphed into over the last several years. I would say the last several decades. Yep. Definitely the last 10 yep. years. Of course. Of course. Anyone who didn't see this coming was not looking. Didn't want to see. Correct. Nodding to the uh, divisions between the parties in Congress now, Boehner adds, quote, whatever they end up doing or not doing, none of it will compare to one of the lowest points of American democracy that we lived through in January of 2021. Well, I actually hope he's right about that. Right now, I'm not entirely sure that that was the rock bottom. I hope so, but we will see. Uh, Trump, uh, Boehner goes on to write, quote, claimed voter fraud without any evidence and repeated those claims, taking advantage of the trust placed in him by supporters and ultimately betraying that trust. Well, I certainly hope that Mr. Boehner speaks out about all of the states around the country where his party is currently trying to take that big lie and make it even worse by instituting more voting restrictions based on the pretend idea that somehow Donald Trump did not lose the election and uh, that idea that led to that deadly insurrection that uh, Boehner now decries. Don't know if he decries what his party is doing right now, today, all across the country. In any event, <clears throat> Congressman Thompson and, uh, and the other plaintiffs in this newly amended lawsuit filed in federal district court in Washington, against uh, uh, Trump for all of this on Wednesday. They are seeking compensatory and punitive damages as well as injunctive relief. The dollar amounts would be determined by a jury at a trial. 
according to an NAACP spokesperson. That's that's a trial that, yes, I will be looking forward to. Just one of many, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. You know, I think we all kind of have a national case of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. and Post-traumatic, post-Trump stress disorder, oh, yes. That too, that yeah. too. It's, it's, it's remarkable, and I can understand how it would be so much worse for those who were actually physically there. As to the uh, ongoing disasters, uh, Trump disasters on the foreign front, in this case the nuclear deal that Trump blew up with Iran, Trita Parsi joins us next to discuss the efforts in Vienna this week to see if it can all be put back together again somehow after Trump not only broke the deal, but put in place sort of a neat little trick that is going to make it much harder for Joe Biden to undo the damage. That is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In 2015, after years of delicate and often complicated negotiations by the U.S. during the Obama administration, along with China, France, Russia, the U.K., and Germany, all parties reached an agreement with Iran to curb the Islamic Republic's nuclear program in exchange for the lifting of years-long sanctions. The deal, called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, worked worked well, according to virtually everybody, even according to the officials in the Trump administration once he took office in 2017, after running on the Fox News-fueled notion that the agreement was, as he often uh, described it, the worst deal the U.S. had ever made. Of course, Trump said the same thing about pretty much every deal the U.S. had ever made. And in this case, despite the overwhelming success of the deal, the shutdown of thousands of nuclear centrifuges and the removal of enriched uranium from Iran, which they had always maintained was for peaceful purposes to create energy, not bombs. Nonetheless, Donald Trump unilaterally violated the agreement, pulled the U.S. out of it and reimposed punishing sanctions on Iran. Despite that, Iran struck to its end of the bargain for several years until, in 2019, they began to enrich uranium again at levels higher than that allowed by the JCPOA. And why not? The U.S. had broken its side of the bargain, so why should Iran stick to its part of the agreement years later? In December of 2020, after the election of Joe Biden, Iranian officials expressed willingness to rejoin the deal— provided that sanctions are lifted by both the U.S. and international bodies in order to restart the deal. And this week, with Joe Biden now 
safely in office after running on the premise that he would, in fact, re-enter and restore the landmark, hard-won, seven-party anti-nuclear pact struck during his tenure as vice president under Barack Obama, talks finally began in Vienna to do just that. For now, however, the talks are indirect through intermediaries as Iran and the U.S., after Trump's unlawful unilateral violation of the pact, are not yet back on direct speaking terms. But on Tuesday, officials from five world powers, Russia, China, Germany, France, Britain and Iran, began the new effort described by AP as a delicate diplomatic dance that needs to balance the concerns and interests of both Washington and Tehran. The U.S. and Iran agreed through intermediaries, according to The New York Times this week, to establish two working groups to try to get both countries back into compliance with the 2015 deal. All parties agreed to establish one working group to focus on how to get the U.S. back to the deal by lifting harsh economic sanctions imposed or reimposed by Donald Trump. Uh, after he pulled out of the accord and the other working group will focus on how to get Iran back into compliance with the accords limitations on nuclear enrichment and stockpiles of enriched uranium. The two groups have already begun their efforts, according to Mikhail Yulianov, the Russian representative who is ambassador to international organizations in Vienna. Yulianov called Tuesday's meeting. A success, but in a Twitter message, he cautioned the restoration of the deal, quote, will not happen immediately. It will take some time. How long, he said, nobody knows. The most important thing after today's meeting of the Joint Commission is that practical work toward achieving this goal has started. Indeed, sometimes the first step is the most difficult one, but the parties now at least appear to be on the way. As Yulianov suggests, however, it will not be an easy path. Writing on Tuesday over at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, now there's an idea, Tyler Cullis and Trita Parsi, who uh, worked as an advisor to the Obama White House during the negotiations for the original 2015 agreement, they argue that movement toward a deal may need to happen more quickly than is currently being discussed. They write that returning to the Iran nuclear deal is not a matter of nuclear technicalities or diplomatic savvy. It remains primarily a matter of political will and political capital. While all eyes are on the start of the formal talks in Vienna, they write the real test will take place in Washington, D.C., where President Joe Biden must muster the political will to tear down the so-called sanctions wall that his predecessor put in place for the sole purpose of preventing an American return to the nuclear agreement. With only two months left now until the Iranian elections, Cullis and Parsi note, Washington and Tehran find themselves in agreement on at least one issue. There is no time for a lengthy negotiation on how the two can return to full compliance with the JCPOA. Two lists need to be compiled and agreed upon, one that charts out the measures the Iranians must take, one that spells out the Americans' to-do list. The Iranian checklist is relatively easy, they argue. Iran needs to reverse all the measures it has taken since May of 2019 that contradicted the JCPOA. 
But the American list is much more complicated. Biden now faces major sanctions hurdles that are entirely intentional. President Trump, in his last two years in office, they say, meticulously built a sanctions wall that explicitly was designed to make any return to the JCPOA by subsequent presidents prohibitive in terms of political cost. For all that Trump was lousy at, all that he failed at, it seems that his administration here did... uh, A pretty decent job, not only in reinstituting old sanctions, but putting new ones in place with additional parameters before they can ever be lifted. And that that may have succeeded in tying the hands of future administrations, uh, structuring those punishing sanctions in a way that they couldn't just be relifted once Iran went back to following its end of the bargain. Joining us now to explain all of this is Dr. Trita Parsi, Middle East foreign policy expert and the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is the co-founder and former president of the largest Iranian-American grassroots organization in the U.S. That would be the National Iranian-American Council. And he's the author of several books, including his latest, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, detailing his experience working as an advisor to the Obama administration on the JCPOA. Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, as it turns out, uh, the Trump administration apparently was not terrible at everything, it seems. They were actually able to institute a scheme here that sort of makes it much more difficult for the Biden administration to simply lift the sanctions that Trump reimposed on Iran. How, how, did, uh, how did the Trump, accompl- uh, Trump administration accomplish that? Well, I don't think anyone actually has accused them of being bad at destruction. I think at uh, <laughs> destruction, they actually excelled quite well and, and, and almost in an unprecedented and unparalleled way. Mm-hmm. What they did with the Iran deal, the type of sanctions wall, these are their own terms that they created, is that they took an entity in Iran that already was sanctioned under the nuclear um, uh, authorization, Mm -hmm. and then they sanctioned that entity again under a terrorism authorization, and and at times even a third time under a different authorization. The calculation being that if the U.S. were to try to go back into the nuclear deal, the request would be that the United States would have to lift all nuclear sanctions. But it would not be obligated to lift the terrorism sanctions or Mm -hmm. other forms of sanctions. And the effect then would be that even if the U.S. were to lift the nuclear sanctions, those entities in Iran would still be sanctioned, but under different names. Mm. And as a result, this would obviously be unacceptable to the Iranians. The Biden administration would not have enough political will and cover to be able to lift sanctions that were imposed on terrorism grounds, and as a result, the war would stand, the JCPA would die, and eventually the United States and Iran would gravitate towards some sort of a military confrontation. That is pretty clever. So if I understand this, uh, basically, uh, they the sanctions were reimposed the, uh, and said, you know, this is regarding not just the nuclear issues, but your support of state-sponsored terrorism, your missile program, and so forth. And in order to lift those sanctions, just going back to the nuclear agreement would not be enough. You also have to do all of these other things. I'm under, uh, understanding that correctly? Well, uh, 
that would be one way that uh, they could calculate that it would work. But bottom line is, so for instance, take the Iranian central bank. Mm-hmm. It's under sanctions uh, or was under sanctions for nuclear um, on nuclear grounds. Mm-hmm. And those sanctions were lifted. Trump reimposed those sanctions under the nuclear umbrella. And then he imposed those very same sanctions again under the terrorism authorization. And if the U.S. were to strictly go back to the deal by lifting the sanctions that were lifted by the JCPA the first time, Mm -hmm. it would only lift those sanctions on the Iranian Central Bank under the nuclear umbrella. It would not touch the other ones. So those would, and now yeah. you have people, and part of the argument that is being used in Washington is that all oh, those other sanctions are mm-hmm. providing the U.S. with leverage. Is Biden just going to give away this leverage for free without asking for anything in return, going through exactly what you said? But reality, by definition, mm-hmm. these sanctions were not imposed to provide leverage. Leverage means that there's something that you can move. You can impose it and you can lift it. These were designed to be unmovable, and as a result, mm. are not leveraged. They're there to sabotage. I, you say that they were that they are, are designed to be unmovable, but um, wouldn't ending the missile program, wouldn't ending state uh, sponsorship of militias in the region, wouldn't that, in fact? end up lifting the uh, lifting all of these sanctions and by the way why was the missile program and and uh, and and the sponsorship of, of regional militia and so forth why was that not included in the original agreement well let's take the first part of your question first um, including the missiles so saying you know but if the Iranians end their missile program then mm-hmm. you know these would be lifted well they specifically did it because they knew that the Iranian missile program is not going to be ended you cannot have a situation in which the United States sells $60 billion of weaponry to Saudi Arabia on the southern part of the Persian Gulf, mm-hmm. and then you expect the Iranians to disarm. The Iranians are already spending one-fifth on military uh, uh, and defense than what the Saudis are doing. And if you combine the entire uh, Arab side of the Persian Gulf, the Arabs are outspending Iran with a factor of nine or ten. So you cannot simply then have the expectation that mm-hmm. if... You want to have the Iranians to not have uh, a pathway to nuclear bomb. They cannot have missiles. They essentially cannot have anything, while we at the same time will arm the other side of the Persian Gulf to the mm-hmm. teeth. It's just completely unrealistic. And that's the point. They're putting forward a test that is impossible to achieve, and that way the sanctions will never be lifted. Now, you ask, why weren't the, nucle- why weren't the missiles included in mm-hmm. the negotiations? The negotiations were based on the nuclear issue for a very simple reason. The Iranians have signed a non-proliferation treaty, and as a result, there was a legal basis to impose sanctions on Iran at the UN because the argument was, in a case, a convincing case had been made that the Iranians had violated an agreement that they had signed. Mm-hmm. There is no such agreement on missiles. There's nothing that the Iranians have violated. Mm-hmm. So you don't have an international legal basis to do so. It doesn't mean that you can't have a negotiation on it, but then you, then you mm-hmm. have to be able to offer something in return, not just be able to say that the basis of those negotiations is because we want to negotiate, uh, and you have to get punished even though you haven't violated an agreement. Moreover, I think it's important to keep in mind to have these negotiations be successful. It was essential that the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans were all on the same page, mm-hmm. all on the same side, and presenting the Iranians with a united front. As soon as you go outside of the nuclear issue, the unity falls apart. Mm. 
the Russians, the Chinese, to some extent even the Europeans are not on the same page as the United States when it comes to missiles, certainly not when it comes to uh, human rights issues or, you know, Syria or Yemen. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Chinese, the Russians are much closer to Iran in the Syrian case than they are to the U.S. So it actually would provide the Iranians with an opportunity to play the different great powers against each other. Mm. So we had to focus on the only thing that actually there was a consensus on. And and we did, and we got an agreement, and the agreement worked. And then Trump came in and uh, destroyed the whole thing and reimposed these sanctions in a way that make them very difficult to lift by a future president. Was it done by the Trump administration as a way to actually push Iran towards ending its missile program and, and, and its support for militia groups? Or was this explicitly done, as you see it, uh, Dr. Trita Parsi, as a way to tie the hands of future U.S. administrations to prevent them from ever rejoining or restoring the uh, JCPOA? Well, thankfully, we don't have to speculate because the Trump administration itself actually went on record and explaining why they were doing it. And they said explicitly, we're doing it to make it as difficult as possible to reverse these sanctions. And uh, just spelled it out. Yeah. And and if so, uh, how does Biden work around that problem at this point? It sounds like in order to lift these sanctions to give Iran what they need here, uh, he's going to face holy hell, as you write uh, in, in your piece this week at Responsible Statecraft. He's going to face holy hell back in D.C., back from Fox News, back from the Republicans and even from uh, some of the Democrats, because he'll be seen as lifting these sanctions regarding the missile program, terrorism and everything else. Well, I think his best line of argument is to exactly use the words of the Trump administration themselves and point out that this was not actually in reality imposed on terrorism grounds. This was explicitly imposed in order to make a return to the JCPOA impossible. And as a result, in reality, they are nuclear-based. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he can and should lift them in order to be able to get back into the JCPOA. If he doesn't do this, yeah. and we don't get a nuclear deal, then we will be back where we were before where the Iranians were going forward with their nuclear program and the United States and Iran were gravitating towards a military conflict. And it seems to me there's a lot of uh, at least Republicans in D.C. who seem to want exactly that. And, you know, no matter what case you make to them, it seems like they want to move towards war with Iran. Am I, uh, am I reading that right? Certainly when it comes to people like Tom Cotton, mm-hmm. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, that appears to be their agenda. Um, they are probably understanding that that is not a popular agenda, and as a result, they finesse their arguments in a more clever way than the Trump administration did, because it was quite fascinating that the Trump administration was so transparent about the fact that they're doing this in order to make it more difficult to reverse the sanctions. At this point, why should Iran, frankly, have any interest in in working with the U.S., in trusting the U.S. on another deal, short of, frankly, huge new concessions by the U.S., given that we were the ones who violated the deal in the first place, apparently uh, in multiple ways? That is a very good question, and we're quite lucky that at this point the Iranians still are interested in going back into the deal despite these challenges. Not that it hasn't made it more difficult. In fact, I think it has dramatically weakened the U.S.'s negotiating position, because if you are seen as an untrustworthy negotiating partner, not just by the Iranians, but also by the other countries in the 
P5 plus one because it, you know, European companies lost huge amount of revenues when mm-hmm. Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal. And that was legitimate trade that they were engaging in. This was not something illegal that they were engaging in. This was stuff that essentially the U.S. itself had approved until Trump comes and does an 180. Uh, this weakens your negotiating position, so it's a very bad situation. But the scenario you're putting forward, that the Iranians may just simply conclude this is not worth it because the U.S. cannot keep its word, is potentially going to be a reality after the Iranian elections in June of this year. We may very well end up with a completely different team, uh, a very different foreign minister, a very different um, president who may actually run on that very platform and say that one of the things they will do is to stop this uh, engagement with the United States because of what the Trump administration mm-hmm. did and because of the difficulty of making sure that a deal with the United States is sustained. Just to put it in context, the Iranians just signed a 25 year agreement with the Chinese. The Iranians probably do not care at all who comes in and replaces Xi. They don't care who is the head of the Communist Party because they have confidence that the Chinese are going to keep their word. Whereas on our end, unfortunately, we couldn't keep an agreement for two years, even one that we were the lead negotiators of. Mm. And so what we're seeing, as you describe it, Dr. Parsi, it sounds like you're describing sort of an echo of what we have seen, what we saw in the U.S. elections where this deal was struck. And then you've got the Republicans who came out and said, we're going to tear up that deal if you elect us. Now you have uh, uh, folks in Iran who are also running on the idea that even if they do strike an agreement here in the next couple of months, and, and, and you suggest that's one of the reasons this needs to move quickly, even if they do, the opposition group is running on the idea that we're going to tear it up because we can't trust the U.S. It sounds exactly like what we heard uh, here four years indeed, ago. Indeed, it would be a mirror image of what happened here. Uh, fortunately... No one has so far come forward and explicitly made that their campaign promise. Uh-huh. But I think it is, unfortunately, a rather significant likelihood that someone will. And that is very worrisome, and that's why I think the Biden administration is now trying to move very fast. Unfortunately, they moved quite slowly in the beginning. We lost two months, but they're moving very fast right now and trying to make up the time that was lost. There's also the little matter of the uh, U.S. under Donald Trump assassinating a beloved Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, that was back on, uh, on January 5 of 2020, just last year at the Baghdad airport in Iraq. Uh, Iran has said that they have still not fully retaliated against that airstrike or that they reserve the right to do so. Does that issue come to play now in these negotiations going on in Vienna? So far, it has been part of the larger picture, part of, you know, the argument as to whether engagement with the United States is worthwhile or not. Uh, I fear that that issue will definitely become a much bigger issue if no deal is reached under this current government and then the next government becomes, uh, you know, a mirror image of what the Trump administration was. Um, and, and that would obviously, again, be very bad. So, I mean, this is very clear. This is in our national interest to make sure that we secure this deal. And I think one thing I wish the Obama administration had been a little bit more forthcoming with mm-hmm. um, and level with the American public is to really make clear this deal is not just important because it stops Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and that it prevents a very unnecessary and devastating war between the United States and Iran. It's also important because it's kind of the ticket for the United States to get out of the Middle East militarily. 
we needed to check the Iranian nuclear program in order to enable the United States to check out of the Middle East militarily. I'm not talking mm. about diplomatically or in trade, but mm. in the sense that we have 19 bases in the region, 58,000 troops, uh, and that's the current level. They keep on going up and down. But if we are going to endlessly police the Middle East, then we will be in endless wars. That's just the reality. And the American public are completely turning against these endless wars. Will we have to, will the U.S. Uh, and, its, and its partners here have to give, uh, essentially have to give up more this time in order to get back into the deal, given that we broke it the last time? And if so, uh, what more uh, w- w- would the uh, Iranians be asking for here? I think actually we are kind of lucky because the scenario that exists right now is uh, a formula called compliance for compliance. The U.S. just needs to do what it had already promised it would do, and the Iranians just need to do what they already had promised to do. Then we may end up in a scenario in which if the United States seeks to renegotiate certain aspects of the deal, there's a desire to extend some of the deadlines of the deal, etc., then I think we will see that the Iranians will come back with very, very hard negotiating positions in which they will seek to get some form of a compensation for the damage mm-hmm. the Trump administration did. They are estimating, I have no idea whether this number is true or not, that economic sanctions for the last three years have cost Iran a uh, trillion dollars. I doubt that it was that much, but it has without a doubt been devastating to their economy and particularly problematic that the Trump administration actually intensified the sanctions during the pandemic and viewed mm. corona as an amplifier of the pressure that the U.S. was putting on Iran. Mm. The uh, New York Times reports that both uh, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani and the uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei are in agreement about the talks. Spokesperson says everything can happen really quickly in a series of independent but connected, synchronized steps. The uh, Iran Deputy Foreign Minister, who's leading the talks for Iran in Vienna, who was uh, critical in the uh, 2015 negotiations, says that uh, Iran, quote, is fully ready to stop its retaliation nuclear activity and return to its full commitments as soon as U.S. sanctions are lifted and verified, adding that he sees the talks so far in Vienna as constructive. But it does sound like the U.S. is going to have to take the first step here. Uh, Do you see that happening? And are you uh, as seemingly encouraged by uh, the progress this week as some of the other parties seem to suggest they are? I am definitely encouraged um, that this is going forward. I don't think, however, the U.S. or Iran will take the first step. I think what will happen is that they will come up with a formula in which the steps are essentially taken simultaneously. And some of these steps are not necessarily that the U.S. will have to do something. It could simply be that the U.S. and Iran make a binding decision at the same time of what the things are that they're going to do and when. The implementation may vary because these are very different things. What Mm -hmm. the Iranians need to do on the nuclear front is, you know, physical things are dramatically different from sanctions lifting. But the binding decision to do it takes place at the same time. And that way both sides can say, we didn't go first and everyone wins. Do, do, Do the Iranians, and I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but do the Iranians regard Donald Trump as the uh, the pariah, the what was the word I'm looking for, the exception to the rule. I mean, when I think about, you know, I think, okay, that was Donald Trump. 
this is never going to happen again. We're never going to have somebody quite as uh, crazy as him in office. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong about that, but do they understand that uh, Trump was really the exception to to the rule or does that just not matter at this point u.s broke its word and that's that obviously you have different perspectives on this on iran but i would say that the perspective of some of the hardliners based on what they're saying publicly is that they understand that that is the perception in some places certainly a lot of americans view that way the way they see it however Mm -hmm. is that Donald Trump was just another variation of the same thing when it comes to how the U.S. deals with Iran. Mm -hmm. This is their perspective. And when you had actually very little, it's actually any movement uh, by the Biden administration in the first two months in office, I mean, for instance, the very same things Biden said Trump needs to lift right away, such as, you know, the sanctions that were making it impossible for the Iranians to buy medicine during COVID. Mm -hmm. He tweeted in 2020 that, you know, Trump needs to lift those right away. He's been president for almost 100 days. It's not been lifted yet. Mm. They're looking at that and they're saying, you know, this is all the same. Trump, Biden, different rhetoric, but at the end of the day, the treatment of Iran from their perspective, and again, I want to emphasize this is more the hardliners there, Mm -hmm. they see it as all the same. Uh, Finally, uh, Doctor, I know that you advised the Obama uh, White House during the initial JCPOA agreement. Have the have the Biden folks reached out to you on on how to, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together here? Um, I've been in conversations with them from the very beginning, Uh and and I'm very encouraged that um, these steps are taken now. I think they, too, recognize that there was too slow of a movement in the beginning. Um, that movement, the pace of that was very much uh, a function of the fact that Biden had to focus on a lot of different things domestically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think there were small things that could have been done there that could have been quite helpful. But nevertheless, they're moving fast now, and hopefully the political will, the political space will exist to also undo this, uh, tear down this sanctions wall that Trump deliberately put together to make sure that the U.S. would never be able to honor its word on the JCPOA. And on that encouraging note, we'll wrap up here. Dr. Parsi is a Middle East foreign policy expert, the executive president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which you can find at responsiblestatecraft.org. You can uh, follow Trita on the Twitters at T. Parsi, and you can get more information about him and his books at trittaparsi.com. Dr. Trita Parsi, always an honor to speak with you, sir. Uh, thanks for joining us, and I hope to have more encouraging conversations with you as all of this moves forward. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, a quick break, and we are, uh, by the way, while I was speaking with uh, Dr. Parsi there, some breaking news. Don't worry. It looks like it's, uh, I think, I think good news, uh, somewhat related here. So let me give a look at that uh, over the break, and also hopefully, I hopefully we'll have time for a quick update on the landmark Amazon unionization vote at that uh, company's warehouse near Birmingham, Alabama, where the election ended a week ago Monday, yet we still have not heard any results. Why? Well, if I have time, I will tell you next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. When the work's done here, we can support our families and pay our taxes and buy the things other Americans make. That's what it means when the label says union. Look for the union label when you are buying a coat dress or blouse. Remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages go. It's good to hear that one again. I Welcome know. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, there was a time in this country where unions actually advertised on television. That was uh, 19... 1978. 1978. Okay, well, we got some union news in a second, but uh, very quick, that breaking news I mentioned uh, relating to uh, cleanup on aisle 45, this one in the Middle East, the Biden administration has announced that it will restore hundreds of millions of dollars in American aid to Palestinians, its strongest move yet to reverse Donald Trump's policy on the protracted Israeli-Palestinian conflict, according to The Times, just breaking. The package, which gives at least $235 million in assistance to Palestinians, will go to humanitarian, economic development and security efforts in the region and is part of the administration's attempt to rehabilitate U.S. relations with Palestinians, which effectively stopped when Trump was in office. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken issued a statement saying the U.S. would provide $150 million in humanitarian aid funneled through the U.N. Relief and Works Agency created 72 years ago to assist displaced Palestinians. Another $75 million allocated for economic development programs in the West Bank and Gaza. And $10 million for what Blinken described as peace-building operations carried out by the U.S. Agency for International Development. Blinken says U.S. foreign assistance for the Palestinian people serves important U.S. interests and values. It provides critical relief to those in great need, fosters economic development, and supports Israeli-Palestinian understanding, security, and stability. The restoration of the aid amounts to the most direct repudiation so far of Trump's tilt toward Israel in its decades-old conflict with the Palestinian population in Israeli-controlled territory. So there is some good news. And as to the uh, union label, well, we spoke several weeks ago on this program with labor historian uh, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of the University of California, Santa Barbara, about the historic landmark unionization vote that was then underway at Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse outside of Birmingham. We also spoke with Alabama Governor Don Siegelman on this program about it around the same time. 
confronted uh, by weeks of anti-union propaganda by Amazon. It was really, at the time, anybody's guess as to whether the workers at that plant would, in fact, vote to unionize or not. Despite a long history of support for labor unions in the African-American community in the Deep South there. Uh, I, uh, I've uh, heard from some listeners via broadcast at bradblog.com wondering, well, what happened with that vote? Yeah, what happened with that vote? Good question, Desiree. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, election ended on March 29 and counting began the next day, but the outcome is still unknown a week and a half later. The New York Times reports that the delay is less about the number of ballots than how they are being counted. Yes, the ballots are being hand counted, but apparently that is not the delay. Counting, uh, in fact, counting tens of thousands of ballots by hand is pretty easy and pretty quick, particularly when there's only one item on the ballot with two options, essentially, yes, unionize or no, do not. And in this case, we don't even have tens of thousands of ballots. As the Times explains, the the stakes are high for both Amazon and the labor movement. Progressive leaders like Bernie Sanders have argued a victory for the union. Uh, the first at an Amazon facility in the U.S. could inspire workers elsewhere to unionize as well. And yet, despite the significance just a tiny portion of Amazon's workforce was actually eligible to vote in this election, about 5,800 workers. But each vote involves two envelopes, one that identifies the workers, uh, and inside of that, another sealed envelope containing their secret vote, their secret anonymous ballot. Uh, handling them has reportedly been a painstaking process. Here's what's been going on in a private video conference. I guess this is all so that it's COVID safe. Private video conference uh, viewed by, I believe it's four members of each side, the labor side and the Amazon side. They're uh, watching it via video as a uh, National Labor Relations Board staff member reads the names of the workers identified on the outer envelopes. And then the Amazon and then Amazon and the union, they both have a chance to contest each worker's eligibility as they go through each envelope one by one by one. Wow. And once Amazon and the union have gone back and forth over the disputed voters, the NLRB then finally counts the uncontested ballots anonymously and by hand on a video conference that is open to reporters. That process was set to begin today, or hopefully today. We will see. After that, each side will then have about a week to contest whether the vote was fair before the NLRB certifies the election one way or another. So now that counting itself is uh, actually underway or about to be, we could get word on how that's going. That could come at any time, though the election itself will not be finalized until challenges to the process itself from either side, because they both have complaints about the behavior of the other side. All of that could be a long process that is adjudicated, I believe, by the National Labor Relations Board itself. So not complicated at all. That's what's taking so long to get any numbers out of this. Hopefully we will begin to see some numbers very soon at, at this point. But in any event, that's where we are. 
And of course, if we learn more in the days ahead, we will be sharing it with you because this could be good. Uh, We will see if, in fact, uh, Amazon, uh, the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, leads the nation in uh, unionization. And I think it's important to remember, yes, it's absolutely long overdue, but it's important to remember that even if this particular union vote fails, I think it has ignited interest across the country in Amazon warehouse workers and other Mm non-unionized workers in order to look to what they can do to improve their collective Mm -hmm. bargaining ability because it's been a 30 40 year process in dismantling unions it will take time to restore unions and restore worker rights well said though i suspect it's just because you're trying to steal yourself in case this uh, (laughs) in case this doesn't work out but no you're absolutely right about that and it has inspired people and uh, hopefully we will, before long, start seeing union commercials on television again. That would be neat. Wouldn't it? All right, we got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Dr. Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and, of course, to all of you for spending any time at all with us today. It <laughs> is always uh, greatly appreciated and a great honor. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com to share them with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your enemies, your anti-union friends as well. Hmm. Uh, And you can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me simply at the Brad Blog. That's it. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Look for the union label when you are buying a coat, dress, or blouse. Remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages going to feed the kids and run the house. We work hard, but who's complaining? Thanks to the ILG, we're paying our way. So always look for the union label. It says we're